0: Guaguan, everybody. Welcome to the Dis Afimi History podcast, where we'll be speaking about history and as well family history and how history relates in terms of Caribbean people um, for the present as well as in the past and how in the past what that does and brings forth for what we are going through at present and what we can learn from our history, from our family, and take that moving forward. So I do hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you like it, please ensure to subscribe, like, and review. Thank you. So I want to thank you so much, for coming on to the podcast, Dis uh, History, and to talk about your paper that you wrote, uh, Braided Archives, which I find rather interesting. But before we start, can I just have you introduce yourself to the listeners?
1: Yeah, so my name is Oceania. I am a third-year PhD candidate in Communication and Culture at York University.
0: Thank you so much for that. And so, I wanted to ask you in terms of the title of the paper that you wrote it you wrote, you wrote which was Braided Archives. Very interesting. And I assume it has some meaning and some significant use as to why you used it. Would you be able to explain as to why that you use this to tie in for, for hair?
1: Mm-hmm. So in my own work, um, I think about hair as something that can be encoded so, um, or even like imbued with meaning or significance. We know that things like gender, social status, political association, et cetera, um, are often associated with hair. Um, So I think about um, hair braiding itself as an archival practice. Um, And I think it it was a very interesting and fruitful kind of metaphor to carry as I was working on this project. Um, I'm also a little bit obsessed with titling or naming things in a way that I think or that I hope describes the kind of overall aim or objective of like a paper or project because I think that's very important um and so because this was my master's dissertation I took a very long time to come up with the title and the title was one of the last things um that I was able to kind of land on once it was all written up um and it really kind of helped guide me in my thinking and my writing but it's not something that i had prior um to writing the paper it was it kind of came as i was working through the project
0: no no that's great because it's a different way to kind of look at things and to be able to know that we're kind of walking with history on on ourselves so um Black hair, you know, is often seen or shared with cultural and social meanings. Would you be able to explain these layers and how they play into the diasporic identity and experiences?
1: Yeah. So um, as you might have read in the paper, we know that hair carries a range of social and cultural meanings uh, across cultures, geographies and time. So it's something that is true for humans across time in space, um, But from what we know about pre-colonial Africa, so uh, hairstyles could be used to signify things such as family names, uh, your social status in a tribe, if you were mourning, if you were about to go to war. Um, we also know that um, as the highest place or as the highest positioned um, on a person's body, it was often seen as a gateway um, for the gods. So I always had religious and social um, meaning kind of nestled in, and it was always revered um, for those reasons. We also find that uh, we also find this in the diaspora, but um, I think listeners will maybe be more familiar with the implications or the social implications of Afrocentric hairstyles in the diaspora, kind of like the Afro, which has kind of become an icon of what Black hair um, looks like, or even the political affiliation. I know that when I think about an Afro, I think about the image of Angela Davis, which has also become iconic um, in itself in the civil rights movement and pan-Africanism. So um, I I think that it's very interesting because it's something that is cross-cultural, but also so specific to... Um, Black communities, whether on the African continent or in the diaspora. And what um, what I find particularly interesting is that um, a lot of the hairstyles that emerged or were created in pre-colonial Africa still persist to this day, which is really what I'm kind of interesting and understanding why and what that says about what it means to be part of a diaspora.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. And what you've mentioned kind of leads into the next question here in terms of with hair being a symbolic element in various cultures. In the context of Black hair, how does the article further, you know, discuss this symbolism and its relationship to identity, heritage, and of course, resistance?
1: Yeah, so um, as part of my thesis, so I was supposed to do something um, different, but the COVID-19 pandemic kind of I had to change course, so I relied on um, semi-structured interviews and an auto-ethnography, which are two methods that are becoming more popular in the humanities. So um, for the autoethnography, I maintained a journal for a couple months where I just wrote about memories and feelings that I had about my own hair. And then for the interviews, um, I asked my participants to begin Um, by retelling uh, a memory that they had of getting their hair braided. And so um, this allowed me to like not only rely on the historical record and the archival research that exists, but um, to see whether or not my participants or even if I had retained some of those cultural and social meanings that are associated with hair or if we were even aware of those meanings. Um, And what my participants me or what they shared with me is that um, at least for them and for myself, um, care is kind of like the segue or can be one of the segues into a sort of political or even racial awakening. Um, And it can also be a space that you can use to resist anti-Blackness in a way that's maybe um, it's not necessarily going to a march or to a protest or um, lobbying, but it's something that you can do every day on yourself for yourself that um, indicates to people who are part of the Black diaspora and that are not part of the Black diaspora that this is my identity, this is who I am, this is how I, I identify, this is who I want to be in community with, these, these are my ancestors, these are the people that I want to celebrate using um, one of my ethnic features, quote unquote. Um, And I know that that moment, at least for my participants and even for me, where you kind of see your hair in this different way where it's more than just a burden or more than something that has to be braided or more than something that people make fun of you for, but that it has this like long political and social um, history. It can become so powerful and there's really a transformation that happens at that moment.
0: No, definitely. And I know that you had spoke uh, just about in terms of some of those hairstyles from before pre-colonial Africa um, still being remained. And basically, you know, maybe we can be able to discuss further on some of those um, hairstyles and its meaning. Now, I do have a, a picture here I'll just share and we can kind of discuss on that. Are you able to Yeah, see? so
1: yes. Um, so, unfortunately, as we kind of discussed before we started recording, um, there's a real lack of information about what the hairstyles are or what they mean. Um, one of the uh, one of the books that I relied on in um, writing my thesis is called um, Hair Story by um, Laurie L. Tharps. Um, and she also has a co-author, but um, their name is escaping me right now, unfortunately. But one of the things they note in that book is that um, Dutch explorers actually um, wrote many diary entries about the range of hairstyles that they've um the, and or that they saw uh while they were exploring pre-colonial Africa and the significance of those styles. Um so it's it's known that those documents exist or might have existed. Um but I was unfortunately not necessarily able to um, access them, which is why I focused on cornrows because they are one of those hairstyles, right? That you see in pre-colonial Africa. Maybe they're not called cornrows and I mean my family we don't call them um, cornrows and that's not what they're called in Cameroon but I have Haitian friends that wear cornrows, I have Congolese friends that wear cornrows, I have Jamaican friends that wear cornrows and so um, I think that the fact that that hairstyle I could see everywhere and I could really it it became kind of the center of the conversation also because of when I was writing my thesis. So between 2016 and 2020 was when um, the conversation about cultural appropriation became really big and everyone wanted to know about cultural appropriation. And every time I told someone I was doing research on black hair, the first thing they would ask me is, what do you think about Kim Kardashian wearing boxer braids? Um, And there's a certain level of frustration that I have with that because I understand why the conversation is happening, but it's not necessarily what I'm interested in commenting on um, all the time. But nonetheless, cornrows, which were at the kind of center of the cultural zeitgeist, um, if I want to put it that way, um, it was a very important or at least a very significant um hairstyle for me and my own thinking, because as I mentioned, um, it was something that I saw a, really appearing across um, time and space, braided hairstyles um, are something that were carried from pre-colonial Africa to now. Um, and I mean, my work has shifted a bit since my master's uh, thesis was published, Um I'm focusing more on the physicality now and the actual act of braiding hair and what that does to the body, um, and understanding hair braiding as um, an embodied, embodied practice, so a practice that involves not only the body of the braider itself but the body of the person who gets their hair braided. Um, I know that I move a lot when I get my hair braided, or I'll fall asleep and the hairdresser has to move me in a certain way. And so it's, it's something that is physical both, um, in the doing, but also in the kind of receiving. Um, and so I think that, um, my articles so my master's thesis at that point, I was really interested in the styles themselves, but now a few years later, I'm, I'm kind of, I've shifted a little bit from that and I'm really more, um, interested in the actual physicality of it and like what it feels like to braid hair and what does that mean if you're a hair braider and the kind of knowledge that you need to carry with you because as you mentioned we are walking history right and so what is the what are the cognitive um necessities you know that you need to be able to look at a head of hair and know that I'm going to separate it this way, this way. And I'm going to have this many braids on this side, this many braids on this side. And I'm going to create a beautiful pattern in hair because I think that um, it's something that is not often thought about um, as like an intellectual practice, but it takes a lot of skill. I know that I am terrible at parting hair and at like doing the neat lines, right? But like, it's a real skill and it's a real there's um my uh article also touches on that a little bit but there there is a real like mathematical and um geometric knowledge that you have to have to create the hairstyles that um that we see you can't just sit down and decide that you're going to corner someone's hair and all the braids are going to be perfect and equal or you're going to give someone box braids and all the boxes are going to be ex- uh, hexagon or they're going to be triangles there's a real kind of intellectual process um that takes place and unfortunately it's not really discussed as such and that's it that's really kind of what i'm interested in and what i want to bring forward because that that is knowledge that comes all the way from pre colonial africa and that for some reason through um oral histories and through um physicality and through song and through the ways that we move and kind of behave in the world we're maintained and I think that that's a bit it's very beautiful and it's very um it's at the center of what I do right this kind of ode to um not only the resilience but the ingenuity of Black people because we don't the conversation is often about resilience and how we're so resilient and we've been through so much, but not the uh, ingenuity and how smart and how um, the the things and the knowledge that we have that is often not even thought about as knowledge. It's relegated to like the realm of craft when I think that it should be um, reconsidered. I, I know that that was completely different than oh, no, what no, you asked, sorry. No,
0: no, that's fine, because that's exactly it. It's, it, it. The fact that we don't have enough of our history documented, it is, as you said, it is pretty much all oral. And the fact that you have been able to at least find a, a picture, because I know what that is to find a, a needle in a haystack type of thing uh, to um, support what you are presenting and um, maybe we could just talk a little bit about this p- picture as well here that's in front of us because of these four different individuals each one has a different hairstyle and as you said there are intricacies here that aren't really talked about aren't really you know thought of as 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 anything it's just oh yeah you just do your hair and that's it no it's not it, there's a little there's a lot more thought going into things and um, maybe we can start on I guess at least this one closest to us, I guess it would be to, um, to the left here, Mm -hmm. who that and what that would represent.
1: Yeah, so the um, adornment of hair itself um, from what I've researched and from what I've kind of gathered would um, at least signify either a certain place in society, or would be used to signify um, someone's um, status. So I know that there were hairstyles that were worn, for example, if a man was about to go to war, or for example, women that were um, in mourning would sometimes shave their hair. So the, um, the adornment in itself signifies something. Um, I think it's also important to note that um, those hairstyles were also very intricate Um, and, uh, there's this, there's this kind of misconception of pre-colonial Africans as savages, right? And, and dirty and so on and so forth. But, um, the Dutch explorers that are mentioned, um, in that book by Laurie Tharps, um, mentioned that actually unkept hair was seen, um, negatively, right? You could be, uh, usually if you had unkept hair, it meant that you were an outcast, so either you had gone through something that had led you to be unable to care for your hair or you were um, shunned or banned from your community and therefore were not able to care for your hair. So we can at least see from this picture that these are people who are part of the community and that have people around them to um, care for their hair and to create these um hairstyles because the the hairdresser was also a figure that existed um in pre-colonial Africa and that was also had a significant social status because hair was seen as something so important and potent um it medicine men for example in Cameroon carried hair with them Um, it was believed that Yoruba women of Nigeria could drive men insane with only one strand of hair so not not anyone could touch your hair. And um, it would. It took a specific person in the community to be um, a hairdresser. And so um, at, what we can at least see from this picture and infer is that um, these are all people who are part of a community where they are at least in good standing enough where they will have their hair done. Um, and I mean, I'm only postulating postulating and um, hypothesizing um, but I would I would assume and I think it would be safe to assume that the different styles on that picture all signify something different about the person um, that is wearing it and I would say that maybe the more adornment um, the more significant so at the like furthest back we have uh, the person who has le- uh it seems to be like leaves or Um, another type of adornment in their hair, I would say that that probably holds a specific or certain significance that, unfortunately, I'm not able to kind of parse through. Hopefully I will. Um, In the future, I am um, contacting um, archives in Germany and across the world to kind of get access to those documents. Um, And hopefully I'll be able to kind of match um hairstyles to um the pictures and images that we have but um yeah it's it's very interesting to um to think about how important even at that time hair was and how intricate intricate and a hairstyle could be and how like the practices that we have now you go to your hairdresser it's a communal experience that was still the case hundreds of years ago.
0: No, perfect. Um, Because again, what you're indicating as well is the sense of community, you have to be part of the community. It's not necessarily, yes, we can probably do it ourselves, but it just shows that we are together in the sense of what we're doing, we are participating and moving forward into being able to um, participate just in that um, society. And how important that was in terms of who did your hair, who touched your hair and what that references all means, which is, you know, sometimes we don't think of it in that way. And um, because we just want to, you know, especially in modern times, we just want to think that, oh yeah, we can just do it all. And it doesn't mean anything when in reality there is meaning behind it. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, going on to, you know, hair seen as a social currency and especially in females, how it defines femininity, and for Black hair, that may not be seen as conforming to to, to Western standards. Would you be able to kind of speak a little bit to this?
1: Yes, so as you've probably read, or you probably know, hair not only defines um, femininity, but it's also a racial marker. Um, It's in fact, one of the few kind of phenotypes um, that, not that doesn't die, but that's still used to this day to differentiate between groups racially, even though um, the idea of races has been rejected or is kind of pushed back in the sciences and in the social sciences. Um, one thing that I found, which is very interesting, is that in forensic science, for example, um, hair and this the uh, classification of hair along racial lines still happens and so um a forensic uh scientist will look at a hair and they will say this is a mongoloid hair this is negroid hair this is caucasian hair so it it still exists um in in or it persists um as like a racial marker in that way but what's also interesting because it also um is related to definitions or ideas around femininity is that um, if you look at the kind of history of the concept of femininity, or at least a historical trajectory, um, that also has a racial component. Um, We know that the ideal of femininity is not the Black woman. um, And so you have this double bind where no matter what you do, you can't actually fully measure up to what this category demands of you because you're already excluded by way of your racial identity and the hair that grows out of your head, right? And so this is further exacerbated by the fact that um, Black hair has and continues to often be demonized um, or at least not really seen as neat um, or clean. We know that in post-Civil War, America and, um, freed, um, African-Americans often had their hair compared to wool or other uh, animal furs. Um, and even more recently, the Crown Act, uh, which is an American legislation that is aimed at preventing discrimination based on hair was only passed in 2021. That is, and I think it was passed in October. So it's, not even a full, like it's three years, almost four years ago that a law was passed to prevent discrimination based on hair. Um, I'm from Montreal and I remember in around 2016, 2020, so when the conversation about cultural appropriation was happening, there were also a lot of headlines about um, Black women being fired from jobs. I remember a specific example about this woman who worked at a restaurant and who was fired because she wore box braids and um I guess her boss did not think that that was a professional enough hairstyle and so um it it becomes really it can become really difficult if you are invested in this concept of femininity to really um to really kind of reach for it when you know that it is exclusionary and that exclusion has always been based around or at least historically also had a racial element. And that hair, even though it's not something that you can control, continues to be associated with um, specific races and then specific attributes and um, it su- supposedly says something about your character
0: no uh, i definitely agree and and what you said there in terms of our hair being defined as as wool that was one of the justifications that they used to um you know, to continue with with slavery is that we are seen as less than as an mm-hmm. animal that's why chattel slavery um continued uh, for such a long period of time because they wanted to use that definition of what our hair is actually like that when you touch it it feels like wool when in reality, even though um, it's still the same even you know genetically, it's just that our hair is just more tightly wound in terms of in a coils type of thing. Not necessarily that it would be very genetically different, right? So mm-hmm. it's just interesting as to what um, still remains from that time until now. And as you said, you just mentioned this law it, I mean, 2021, and it's 2024. So I mean, we still have a long, long ways to go. And, um, you know, just like you had mentioned previously in the discussion about, you know, touching hair, you know, Solange, you know, made that um, single about don't touch my hair. And this theme of people not touching hair or being careful as to who touching hair, you know, where did this come from? And what's the meaning behind it?
1: Yeah, so Solange um, has said, or rather she wrote, that um, this song is like a larger reflection on the host- hostility that she's faced um, in a predominantly white industry, but also um, in her own life. And for me, I found the lyrics very touching and salient to my own personal experiences um, and to the experiences of my friends and family members, because I think that we all have stories um, about people touching our hair or asking questions about our hair that they would never ask someone that um, had curly hair, but the curls were looser or that had, or or that has straight hair. Um, And the song is also very significant um, because an earlier version of this thesis, um, which was a paper that I submitted in one of my classes, uses some of the lyrics as an epigraph Um, and those lyrics are they don't understand what it means to me um where we chose to go where we've been to know and i i thought that those lyrics were so relevant because it's true most people don't know or understand the significance of hair in black communities whether you're on the african continent or in the diaspora or they don't even know or think about the work that it takes to maintain hairstyles that um, either keep our hair healthy or that fit within the Western standard and the pressures that can come from having to chemically straighten or alter or braid your hair because um, you are going to face social or sometimes even monetary consequences. Um And sometimes even at the cost of your health, for example, we know that relaxers can be are full of chemicals and can be extremely dangerous. And yet we continue to live in a world where this is seen as an option, as something that you might have to do if you want to be taken seriously by your colleagues. If you are a lawyer, for example, or if you're a professor or if you work in a more like in a corporate um, setting, we also know that heat damage can also really be fixed by, or it can only really be fixed by cutting off that hair. Once your hair is heat damaged, there's no way to kind of recuperate that curl. And yet people are still expected to iron their hair or find any means that they can to have it straight. They might be told by a romantic partner that they prefer them with straight hair. They might be told that it looks more professional To have straight hair Um, and so you're still expected to do these things that might be detrimental to not only your health but the way that you see yourself because you live in a world where unfortunately black hair is misunderstood and um, it is seen as something that needs to be tamed or that needs to be neat and that needs to look a certain way for it to be acceptable. Um, I'll talk about in my own life. Um, I had my hair relaxed until my third year of my undergrad, which is when I decided to go natural. And, um, part of the reasons why I had my hair relaxed was I'm very impatient. So it was just easier for me to have, um, my hair bone straight. Um, but also, I grew up in a predominantly white community for a significant part of my childhood. And I just wanted to look like my classmates. I was, the, I was the first Black kid in my elementary school. No one had braids. No one had little puff puffs. I just wanted to look like other people. And it took me thinking about how I don't know what my hair looks like. When it's not straight, I've never seen my hair texture and its natural state. And it's when I had that reflection that I was like, "Wait a minute, this is weird." That I've I, I have no idea. Every six weeks, I go get my hair relaxed, and I don't think about it. Um, and my I my I had my scalp burned at one time because I have a very sensitive scalp, and I kept going back because I was like, "This is." People tell me I look pretty when my hair looks like this. Um, I get compliments. I don't get people trying to hide things in my hair. I don't get people trying to touch my hair or yank my braids. And so um, it, can, it can be very difficult because at that point when I was towards the end of my undergrad, I knew all of the risks um, to my health that I was enduring to keep my hair that way. But it, I still transitioned for like six months and I wanted to hold on to that straight hair for as long as I could. And I wanted my hair to be long enough to like look good in an afro before I cut it. And so even for someone like me who was informed and who's now doing work and research around um, Black hair, even I, it's difficult for me to escape those preconceived ideas and those preconceived notions. Even if I know that they're not true, but you grow up with them and you reinforce them yourself and you have people who reinforce them in your own life and it it becomes very um difficult to escape and so that's it's part of why I thought that song was so relevant for my work but also just for me personally because I was like Solange is right people don't understand what our hair means to us They don't understand why we make the choices that we make about our hair, and they don't understand the consequences that we might face, whether we relax our hair, don't relax our hair, wear braids, wear an Afro, wear wigs, or just decide to shave our heads entirely.
0: No, definitely. And I I mean, when you recalled um, that story of the fact that you had to, after, you know, relaxing your hair, you know, people having to cut off their hair. I mean, that's exactly happened to myself. I had to be at a point where I had to cut it all off and to regrow it in a natural state. So it, it's just, you know, honestly, just fighting those type of preconceived notions, and they still are still active or still present in, in today. So, you know, Ocean, what would you say would be, would be, I guess, some positive reinforcements of people of African descent to embrace their natural hair?
1: So my last answer was quite negative, I guess, but <laughs> I, I do think that there have been positive reinforcements and a kind of re-examination of natural hair and what it means to have natural hair and what you can kind of signify by wearing natural hair. Um, I know that at least in the scope of my article for me and my participants, Um, a lot of us realized around early, mid-teenage years, so like 14, 15, um, that hair can say and communicate so much about a person. Um, But like I mentioned, it can also be like a a small-scale way of resisting or fighting back against anti-Blackness, right? Um, And one of the things that I one of the things that i've always known about myself and that i tell people jokingly is that i feel the most myself with braids in my hair i feel the most black the most african with braids um in my hair so i i underst- like i've always understood even innately that there's there's something that happens when i wear a hairstyle that was worn by my ancestors or that's worn by people on the african continent there's I can't necessarily explain it or put it into words, but, um, I know that there's something that happens not only physically, but also mentally when I wear a specific, um, hairstyle. And I think that, um, a lot of my participants also kind of felt that way in the discussions that we've had. There's also been, um, there's been a kind of rediscovery of um, Black hair and the conversations that we have around Black hair now are more positive or at least um, acknowledge the historical and social significance of Black hair in ways that maybe did not happen like 10 or 15 years ago. So one of the um, most discussed or at least one At the time, um, documentaries about Black hair was Good Hair by Chris Rock. Um, And that documentary has been critiqued for good reason um, because it places the onus or at least the responsibility on Black women rather than society at large that tells us that our hair um, should be maintained in certain ways. But um, there's been a wave of um, other documentaries countries and celebrities have hair care lines and there really seemed to be like a reinvigoration of black hair and people um tend to really be proud to have those hairstyles and um I will say that in my own life um I'm definitely more comfortable just having my natural hair around without it being like in a bun or something just afro for show and um i will i will say that having a group of black friends and really having a, a circle of uh people who also have uh or where they're similar those hairstyles but also have a range because an, another thing is that black hair doesn't look one way or another and so um I definitely have observed at least um, anecdotally that um, there seemed to be a resurgence or people seem to be like starting to wear those styles again and being proud of them. I don't know if it's a reaction to, or I would say that maybe it's in part a reaction to this phenomenon of cultural appropriation, um, but also of like information about, um, hairstyles becoming, um, more significant. I know Glamour magazine had a entire, um, cover and a series about, um, Black hair, and they interviewed, um, hairstylists, celebrities. I think the name of the issue was, was it our hair or was it you? And it's based on a, um, it's a play on a commercial for a relaxer. And so, I think that slowly it's becoming more salient and people are becoming, um, more aware. And, um, I think people are still going through the experiences that maybe, um, we went through when we were younger, but as a whole, um, we seem to be moving towards, um, an acceptance, at least that people should be allowed to do what they want with their hair and that the conversation shouldn't maybe be about the individual but um thinking about why society positions um black hair or even just hair that isn't straight um in a in a certain way so at the end of the day like I personally don't think that it's good to be too prescriptive and I would never tell someone how uh to wear their hair uh or that they have to wear it in a way that reflects an afrocentric hairstyle if it makes them uncomfortable or if they don't think that it's aesthetically pleasing but I would want them to at least think about why do you think an afro is not aesthetically pleasing or why do you prefer your hair straight versus curly and usually that discovery in itself might lead to um an embrace or at least an understanding that um, you are wearing your hair in a certain way because of years and years of historical um, development and ideas. And that it's not, like you mentioned, it goes back to this idea that we are walking history. We're quite literally the embodiment of centuries of discourse around what it means to be black, what it means to have natural hair, what it means to live in a world that um, is only now starting to see black people as people in themselves. And so um, I think what's most important, or at least what I try to do is to create an environment where people aren't shamed for the hair that grows out of their head naturally since it's not something that you can control,
0: I couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, and it and it is it does appear to be changing in a more positive direction. So, which is good. So, you know, Ocean, as we now close out um, this discussion that we're having on black hair, what would be, I guess, your final thoughts on black hair for the diaspora?
1: Um, I think that um there's this idea of complete disconnect between the Black diaspora and the African continent right it's an idea that it's in culture it's also an idea that exists in academia and that has been um critiqued by a lot of um, academics myself included but um I think I would ask people to or even just reflect on this idea that the way that we wear our hair now is proof or at least indicates that there is still a connection between us here and the diaspora and the African continent. We were never fully severed. Historical records will show that. A lot of um, people who were formerly enslaved returned to Africa, and so on and so forth, but that um, we also are a people that um, we have this gift, right, where we can connect with people that are from completely different countries, have had completely different experiences than us, based on something like hair. I can come up to a Black woman and tell her about the last time I was at the hairdresser's, and she will relate to that experience and it creates a space for us to bond in the way that I can't with my friends who aren't black no matter where you come from and it's to me it's something that is so beautiful the fact that we were all over the world and yet we have this like this thing that is in us that connects us in a way that I don't know it's true for non-Black folks, Um, and I think that it's something to be kind of celebrated because for so long it was demonized, and now that we're starting to reclaim it, I just, yeah, I'm like, I'm always in awe of the fact that um, a hairstyle like the cornrows could exist 300 years ago, and it still exists now. Like, to me, that's, the fact that no one has, like, really thought about that before I started doing my work, to me, is mind-blowing. Because I'm like, that's that's incredible. No no one else thought to, like, think this through? How many practices survive in such an intact way? And so I just, yeah, I, I always get kind of giddy um, when I'm asked to think about this. Because I, I really think that it's something that is so beautiful and has like it deserves to be studied in a rigorous way like other practices but um unfortunately wasn't and i'm hoping that at least with my work i can i can start that discussion and other people can also kind of chime in and we can really um that we can hopefully um have the answers to that picture that we just looked at earlier and that we can know what those hairstyles were specifically and what they mean and that um, a child in 10 years who wants to do a project can have the information that they need and that they don't have to do years and years of research they don't have to go get um, an advanced degree to be able to kind of have that information accessible to them.
0: No, thank you. And you definitely hit um, one of those themes, and that is the sense of community. So it doesn't matter from where anybody is, whether it is someone from Somalia, someone from Angola, someone from here in the West. If they meet and see each other, they can connect instantly, and that's a beautiful way to close your point. So thank you so much, Osiyan, for coming on to the podcast and speaking about this. And Hopefully, maybe we can have you back on again to um, <laughs> talk maybe on some of the actual braids and the hairstyles themselves. But truly, I, I thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please make sure to like, follow, subscribe, and write a review for the episode wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you.